The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you'll turn to the 23rd Psalm, if you haven't yet, let me begin by reading it to us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The 23rd Psalm is one of the most beloved Psalms in all 150 Psalms, maybe the most beloved in in the entire Bible. Charles Spurgeon called it the pearl of the Psalms. And when you read this Psalm, you realize that there's no doubt, no misgivings, no fear, no anxiety, because of the psalmist, God has taken it all. Alexander McLaren said, The world could spare many a large book better than this sunny little psalm. It has dried many a tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. The psalm has been used to comfort through trials, illnesses, and even death, as we saw this week. So let's look at this first line. The Lord is my shepherd. If ever there was a a psalm that could stand on a single line, it would be this one. The word Lord here in the English is one of the great Old Testament names for God. It was first revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. And it's repeated more than 4,000 times in the Old Testament. The name literally means, I am who I am. It's an inexhaustible name. Like its bearer, chiefly it refers to God's timelessness on the one hand and his self-sufficiency on the other. And self-sufficiently means that he needs no one else or no other thing. He is completely self-sufficient in his own person. He answers only to himself. Timelessness means that God is always the same in these eternal characteristics and attributes. He was like that yesterday, he was like that today, and he'll be like that tomorrow. So as the psalmist wrote this thing um, centuries ago, the very same truths that he wrote about apply to you and I today in a very direct manner. He is the great I am. On the other side of this amazing line is the word shepherd. In Israel, as in other societies, the shepherd was the lowest job you could get. If families needed a shepherd, it usually befell the youngest of the sons, kind of like David. And they were the ones that had to do most of the dirty work. In fact, a shepherd had to live with a sheep 24 hours a day. He cared for them, he fed them, he protected them. Day and night, Summer and winter, fair weather, foul weather, they labored to guide and to protect 
and care for the sheep. Who in their right mind would want a job like that? Yet, Jehovah has chosen to be our shepherd. Jesus describes himself as Jehovah on one hand and then assumes the task of shepherding his people. Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. What, a, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that he has lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And even more amazing is what Jesus said about himself as the shepherd. John chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all he owns, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. John 10, verses 11 through 12. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And then John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Let me pause there for a second. Look at that again. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Have you ever grasped the reality of the relationship that God wants with you and me? When God can say that the relationship between the Father and the Son should be just like the relationship between you and I in Him. That means that God, in His loving kindness, wants to draw us to Him. He wants to have the relationship. And if you stop and try to meditate on the relationship between the Father and the Son, it's mind-boggling. And Jesus says, you and I are to have that same kind of relationship. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. So you and I, who have accepted Christ as our Savior, are part of that same flock composed of those who have all trusted Christ down through the centuries. So we are not stretching the 23rd Psalm to see that Jesus is our shepherd and to apply it directly to you and I today. If you believe in Jesus, you are one of his sheep. And you have a father who longs to have a relationship with you just as he has with his father. Now as you begin to let that sink in, and you think about your own personal life and some of your struggles and difficulties, you begin to look at them through a different glass. 
You begin to understand that, wait a minute, if God loves me that much, there's got to be more. There's got to be something deeper. And so he moves into this next line that says, I shall not want. That is, I shall lack nothing. This statement goes with the first part. Because you see, left to themselves, sheep lack everything. They are the most hopeless animals. But if we belong to the one who is self-sufficient, inexhaustible, and utterly unchanged by time, we will lack nothing. He is the sufficient for all things and provides us everything. So what is it that the psalmist is talking about that we will never lack? Well, let me just give you six things here that should apply to every single one of us who have that close walk with the Lord. Number one, I will not lack rest. This is because he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. Philip Keller is a pastor and an author who himself was a shepherd for eight years. He's written a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. I highly recommend it. It's a very poignant book. But he shares some insights that will help us to understand why the Bible talks about this parallel between sheep and we who are his people. He says, quote, It's almost impossible to make a sheep lie down unless four requirements are met. First, because of their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free from fear. Secondly, because of the social behavior within the flock, sheep will not lie down unless they are free from friction with other of its kind. Isn't that amazing? Thirdly, if tormented by flies, sheep will not lay down. Only when free from these pests can it relax. And then lastly, Sheep will not lay down as long as they feel the need to find food. They must be free from hunger. Fear, friction, flies, and famine. Well, I think we got the flies covered. We have ways to deal with them. But it's fascinating because sheep must be free from each one of these in order to be content. And as Keller notes, the only only, only the shepherd can meet those needs. Only the true shepherd is the one that can take care of every one of those needs. So it's interesting that the psalm begins with rest. I think it's a reminder that the Christian life also begins with resting in Christ. Along the way, there will be things we need, but in the initial stages, we must learn to rest in Christ. When you're not at rest, your anxiety takes over. Fear rules our heart, and we make poor choices because we're reacting out of the flesh. But when you're at peace and resting in the Lord, you're able to follow his spirit. When you're at peace and quiet before God, you're able to hear his voice and his leading. And so Jesus actually handles all these things himself in the New Testament, fear, friction, and famine. He said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And then John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither lead it, let it be afraid. But it all begins with rest. With a heart that in the midst of a storm can rest in the loving hands of a Savior who said he'd never leave you nor forsake you. So he's dealt with it. The hunger, the rest, and the peace. Number two, you will not lack life. That's because he restores my soul, verse 3. Now, in the Hebrew idiom, the word he restores my soul can mean brings me to repentance. But since here the word translated soul is actually life, and since the metaphor here is that of a shepherding, the words probably mean the Lord restores me to physical health. And once again, I think Keller kind of brings this to a, an interesting head here. He tells a story about something that's called a cast or cast down sheep. And what this is, is a heavy sheep or one that's heavy with wool will sometimes lay down in a depression or on the ground just to kind of stretch out and it leans up against the edge of it and stretches its legs. And sometimes if it's not careful, its center of gravity will change and it'll roll over on its back and it begins to kick and frail trying to get back to its feet. But often this makes the, the, the situation worse and he falls onto his back and he can't get up, almost like a turtle in his shell. And the more kicking he does, this generally leads to gases building up, and within hours, the sheep will be dead. The only one who can restore the sheep is the shepherd. And you know, sometimes we are like cast sheep. We're spiritually on our backs, helpless. Sometimes we're brokenhearted. Sometimes we're defeated. Sometimes things haven't gone well and we don't know which way to go and we're on our backs. But the great shepherd comes and restores us like he did with Peter when he denied him. The shepherd is the one who restores. Number three, I will not lack guidance. This is because he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Sheep are foolish creatures. In fact, they're possibly the most stupid animals there is. One aspect of their stupidity is the fact that they so easily wander off. They can have a good uh, a shepherd who brings them to lush, wonderful fields, brings them to beautiful water, and in times they'll wander off to parched, desolate fields where the water is undrinkable. And isn't that just like us? When we get directed away of our own thinking and our own desire, we pull away from his leading. Therefore, a good shepherd is essential for the well-being. And that's what we're called in Scripture, sheep. We're constantly wandering. And that's why yielding to the Spirit is so critical in our day-to-day -day lives. Martin Luther said, this path is not just a straight path, but it's a right path or a righteous path. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We, just like sheep, go our own way. But the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life for us and draws us to him. Now, there's an interesting thing that I want to point out here. It says, why does he lead us in, in paths of righteousness? The verse says, it's for his name's sake. Now, now, this is important to understand. A commitment to his own glory. Now, now just listen to this. God guides us for his name's sake. Psalm 23.3. God forgives us for his name's sake. Psalm 25.11. God leads us for his name's sake. Psalm 31.3. God delivers us for his name's sake, Psalm 79, 9. God deals with us out of his goodness, Psalm 109, 21. And God lets us live according to his namesake, Psalm 145, 11. Here's the key. God does what he does for his namesake, not ours. We are not the center of the universe. We want all these things to make us happy, but it's for his glory. So why would he withhold any good thing from us if it brings him glory? Why would he do anything to harm us or to not meet our needs if it wasn't for his glory? You see, when you and I begin to realize and take me, I, out of the center of everything and put Christ in the center, you begin to realize you live for someone who loves you, who died for you, who wants to give himself to you, of course he's going to meet your needs. But you have to trust him. You have to come to him in humility and understand that he is leading, he is guiding, he is feeding, he is caring, he's leading you by still waters, he's leading you into lush green pastures, he's forgiving you of your sins for his name's sake. And that's the reality of the plan, and that's why you and I can stay strong and stay trusting in him and try not to do things in our own way. Number four, he, we will not lack safety. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This verse is often used to comfort those who are dying. And I tell you, it was used this week in a very big way. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Death has no sting. To those of us in Christ, there is no death. The body dies, but the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when we sat there at that funeral Friday, as the pastor mentioned up there, we're here grieving, but Stu's not dead. His spirit is with Christ. So we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We know our eternity is secure because of what Christ did for us on Calvary. 
And this verse, as I said, is used for death, but it also speaks of the shepherd's ability to protect his sheep in moments of danger. The picture is of the seasonal passage from the lowlands where sheep spend the winter and then they go through the valleys to the high pastures where they go for the summer. The valleys are places of rich pasture and much water, but they are also places of danger. Wild animals lurk in the broken canyon walls. Sudden storms can sweep through the valley floors. Floods can rage through. And since the sun can't penetrate all the way in, there are dark crevices where animals can hide to prey on them. It's important to note, the valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures which lead beside the still waters. Let me say that again. The valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures which lie beside still waters. That is, the Christian life is not only tranquil, always tranquil, it is, not, it is not always a mountaintop experience. God gives us valleys also. It is the valley with the trials and dangers that develop character. And it's in those valleys that we learn to trust our Lord when there's nowhere else to turn. The valley has its own unique problem. The main problem is fear. But what's the solution to fear? Clearly the answer is the shepherd's close presence. It's running to the shepherd. It's being close to the shepherd. It's allowing the shepherd to guide you. It's allowing the shepherd to put you in the pen at night. It's allowing the shepherd to leave you and stay close to him. That's what marks out fear. Many commentators in Psalm 23 have, have noticed that the second person pronoun, you, replaces the third person pronoun, he. Earlier we read, he makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He guides me. But now we read, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. We're never so, we are never so conscious of the presence of God than in a time of fear. We're never so conscious of the presence of God in the valleys. Number five, I don't lack supply. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Some commentators think that this represents a changing in the psalm's basic image, passing now from that of a shepherd guiding his sheep to a householder welcoming guests to his table. And this may be true since the poem and the psalmist actually ends up with talking about the house of the Lord. But on the other hand, I think Keller might have an interesting point here. He says, a good shepherd will prepare these before, before the sheep arrive. He leads the sheep to the tablelands or the mesas. And he goes ahead of them and he prepares them by removing physical hazards, destroying poisonous plants, and driving predators away. Keller even talks about how the ancient shepherds would take a mixture of olive oil and sulfur, and sulfur and spices and they would use it to put on their cracked hard skin because in those areas, temperatures in the hundred was a commentary, was a commonness. So they would put it on their skin and, and they would give them water and they would care for them. 
And it's fascinating that Psalm 104.15 says, And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. So just like dealing with a sheep, God deals with us. He cares for every need that you and I have. We never lack supply. And then finally, my heavenly home is supplied. The 23rd Psalm portrays life as a pilgrimage. And in the final verse, the psalmist rightly comes to life, comes to life's goal, which is our eternal home with God. Verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, life is a sojourn. We're just passing through here. And what we do in following Christ is what counts. It's that old cliche that says, only one life will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last. And that should be the, the heart of every one of us. John 14, 2 through 3 said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. If you know Christ as your Savior, your eternity is carved in stone. You know where you will be after this life. And so death has no sting. The struggles we go through now are temporary. And as he comes and fulfills us, and as we surrender to him and believe that what he did on Calvary's cross was to pay the price for our sins. You know, many people question that. Why did God have to die? But he is perfect. There can be no sin in his presence. But because he loved you and I so much, he put a plan in place to redeem us. And Jesus Christ, his son, willingly took on the form of man and came to earth. The Bible says that when Adam sinned, by one man, sin entered the world. And so by one man, sin has to be paid. And so Jesus took on the form of man and he came and he willingly went to the cross to die to pay the price so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He is the only way. He is the only way. And so as we read this Psalm 23, probably one that all of you have heard of before, we realize that it is through the great shepherd who loves us and calls us to himself. People ask, if he loves us so much, then why is there so much sin in the world? Why is there so much damage in the world? It's because of sin. It's because of sin. When he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them a choice. You could eat of all there was in the garden except one tree. Now, people kind of joke about that, almost like a child's story, but if, they were, if he didn't want them to sin, why give them a choice? Well, let me ask you a question. If your husband or wife loved you because they didn't have a choice, how would you feel? 
if they were programmed and they had to love you, would that be fulfilling? See, life is a cho- love is a choice. And God so loved the world that he created man with a choice to choose him. And even though Adam and Eve messed up, God loved you and I so much that he put a plan in place to redeem us. But you have to accept that gift. You have to believe that he died for you and you have to come to Christ. And once you do that, the Bible says you are sealed into the day of redemption. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. It's a free gift. And God in his infinite love offers that to all who would believe. I want you to think about that as the men come to prepare for communion. And as they're coming, we're going to, going to, to meditate and just talk to the Lord and examine our hearts. We're going to do things a little different this morning. Um, what we're going to do is the men are going to hand out the bread. And while they're handing it out, they're going to come back and then they're going to get the cup and they're going to hand that out immediately. And through that time, there's going to be a song playing that I want you to listen to carefully about the 23rd Psalm. And then when the song is over, then I'll get up and and we'll partake of that. So let's just go to the Lord now and let's just take a few moments in meditation.